Hey guys, on today's pod I brought on Alex Kung Yu of Celtics Blog, the SB Nation site covering the Boston Celtics. This week's pod is the first of a series I plan on continuing up until the start of the regular season, covering the different potential playoff teams in conference. I figured we might as well start off with one of the best teams and probably the Raptors' biggest challenger in the Eastern Conference right now, and I would say that's Boston Celtics, the team that I would personally say is the favorite in the Eastern Conference. During this pod, it was recorded before the Greg Monroe signing, so you'll know there's, there's no mention of him. I don't think it's super relevant anyways. I don't think he'll be playing major minutes in any kind of Eastern Conference Finals, or at least I hope that he's not playing major minutes versus Boston Celtics. I think that could end very badly for the Toronto Raptors, so he wasn't mentioned in this pod. I'm sure me and Matt will break him down over the next podcast that we have, but for this purpose, he's not included. Instead, we just talked about kind of the Eastern Conference as a whole, what to expect from both Boston and from Toronto, and what you can expect to see if the two ever meet in the playoffs. In general, I thought this pod went really well. I think it's always fun to have someone on from a different fan base and kind of get their perspective not only on their own team, but on the Raptors. Hope you guys enjoy. Alex, how's it going? Good, good, man. How are you? Oh, not too bad. Um, ready to kind of break down the East and finally get into some preseason talk. Yeah, same. It's around that time of the season where the takes get silly on Twitter. People are feeding for basketball, so let's give them some content. Yeah, you know, you get the NBA Reddit thread where it's talking about the most absurd thing you've ever heard. Oh, my God. Do you know, do you know I was actually on Reddit? Like, someone... Like put like a put like a tweet of mine on Reddit saying something about like Jimmy Butler and people were like discussing that and I'm like okay if you're discussing my thoughts this season must really be dead like it had it's really dead to be talking about like me just randomly posting a tweet on a trade rumor. <laughs> I brought you on here uh, as a writer of Celtics blog, the SB Nation site for the Celtics. I brought you on here to kind of talk about the Celtics. We're gonna go. Uh, team by team in the Eastern Conference of all you know possible playoff teams, and I figured I'd start off with obviously the Raptors' biggest kind of rival for the division, and that's Boston Celtics. I guess I'll start off by saying to you right now: Do you think that the Celtics are the best team in the East? Um, yeah, I do. Um, it's really difficult now because with the Kawhi equation, it's just so. The, like, the variance is just so high. Like, if Kawhi comes back and he's a top-five player in the East, that changes a lot. Because then, when you start comparing the two teams, for example, because in my... And just to start off, in my opinion, the Celtics and Raptors are the two top teams in the East, and whoever... And they're going to be in the playoffs playing each other in, in the Eastern Conference Finals. And they have to get through each other to make the Finals. That's how I feel, just right off the bat. So when you compare kind of like their two teams... I feel like defensively, Toronto might actually have the edge. And what I think the Celtics kind of would have an advantage is offensive versatility. The fact that um, the Toronto guys can all mostly stretch the floor, 
but I think the Celtics guys are really good at kind of creating for themselves. You look at like guys like Kyrie Irving, um, Jason Tatum, obviously, uh, even Al Horford in the post. Hayward can do that, and I think that offensive versatility would kind of be like the difference. However, if Kawhi Leonard is Kawhi Leonard, that really evens it up to the point where it's a complete toss-up to me as to who would win in a, in that series. So I would say a big part of that comes down to, like, what type of Kawhi you guys are going to get this year. Yeah, I'm actually with you. I think I've kind of gotten some slack from other Raptors people. I think the Celtics are still the favorites as we look at it right now. Obviously, you know, it's all probabilities that could change. I don't think that the chances Toronto is the best team in the East are very low. I think they're actually relatively high. But I think that right now I would give the edge to the Boston Celtics. And that's, like you said, just the offensive versatility of having Boston has a few more number one options they can throw at you rather than Toronto. You know, they just have so many guys, particularly if you go with the starting lineup that started last season before Hayward's injury. And there's just so many different options and viable scores on that team. Yeah, and I mean, also, but then like I, the reason why I can't really commit to one way or another is because the Raptors also have, like, their own share of young crop. Like, Pascal Siakam is someone I really like a lot. OG is someone I'm really, I really like a lot. And depending on who you ask, um, those guys could be people, like, for example, Zach Lowe's already said <laughs> on his podcast, if Pascal Siakam developed a jump shot, he could see him make an all-star team. So it's not like the Raptors don't have, like, these high-level young players who could absolutely take a leap. And everything you hear about guys like OG and Pascal Siakam is that, like, they're workout warriors, and they want to get better. And you guys have such a good system there that it's, like, it's not out of the question that, along with Kawhi, it could also be those guys take a lead. Like, those guys might get more agency in the offense. And then, you know, like, from there, who knows? So it's, like, I really do think this is going to be a really good Eastern Conference, a lot better than people give um, it credit for. It's a lot better at the top, I think, than people give it credit for. The top three teams in the East, I think, would three of the top five teams in the NBA are in the East. I think that the when you talk about the Raptors and Celtics, I think they're just as good as the Rockets, and then I think Philadelphia is better than, although them in Utah is about even, I think. But regardless, yeah, I think the top of the East is better than people give credit. And you brought up a good point about the young players for Toronto. It's kind of interesting. I guess Toronto is more relying on the internal growth of individuals, whether that be Pascal Siakam or OG Ananobi taking the next step, while Boston is kind of going to be more reliant on the team growing and how they develop as a team, kind of integrating different players into the system that perhaps didn't play all that much last year. Yeah, so, I mean, the thing with the Celtics now is that now that Hayward is back, it really... It's weird, because, like, you never want to say there's too much wing depth, but I think Boston might actually have too much wing depth. Because now, all of a sudden, when Hayward comes back and Jalen and Tatum made their steps up, um, all three of them are going to get the bulk of that, like, I would say between two to four, um, like, positions two to four. Like, those minutes are majorly going to go to them. And then what happens is you have guys like Chevy, who they like a lot and they want to play. You have a guy like Marcus Morris, who was big for them going down the stretch, even though he wasn't so hot in the playoffs. Um, you even have a guy like Marcus Smart, who, if you know a little bit about Brad Stevens, he loves three-guard lineups. And a big part of that is he puts Smart at, like, a wing position. 
And you're going to have guys like Brad Wanamaker, who's a new guy that a lot of people don't know, who played who play for Federbachi last year. He's about the same size as Smart, and he might even be involved in the three-guard lineup. So what you have now is you have almost like four guys like in, in the back half of the rotation kind of like battling for minutes around the same role. So I think the biggest problem for Boston isn't necessarily going to be um, getting people to play together as much as it's going to be, like, balancing all those guys, especially during the regular season. Because a guy like Marcus Morris is one of the most, like, outspoken guys on the team. So going from being a 30-minute guy, being in the spotlight, defending LeBron James, to, like, you're battling with a second-round pick for minutes, is he going to be happy with that? And how he reacts to that, how is that going to have an effect on the team? So I think what the, Celt- the Celtics' biggest thing right now is going to be kind of balancing all these guys and trying to mix and match in a way that, like, everyone can still have a role while they're winning. And you have Terry Rozier, who was kind of had a breakout postseason that now is going to be relegated to far... Is he going to be okay kind of stepping down to 15 minutes a game or so? Yes, yeah, especially with... um, So, something I look back on, because a lot of people were saying that, like, how is Rozier going to react now? Um, Before Kyrie went down and, like, Kyrie, Smart, and Rosier were all healthy. Um, Rosier was averaging about 23 minutes a game. But that was with Kyrie only playing, like, 32. Mm-hmm. And Kyrie has already kind of, like... Like, he hasn't really, like, publicly said it, but there's, like, some talk that, like, he doesn't... He wants to play a little bit more, and he has kind of, like, a bigger belief in, like, shorter lineups. So if Kyrie's 100% healthy and he wants to play, like, 35 minutes or something like that, that could be the difference between, like, Rosier being okay... And like a 23, 24-minute role to him being like what you said, maybe like a 15, 20-minute role. And if he's in a contract year, and, and that's another thing, even even with Marcus Morris, same thing. They're both in contract years, and they could be both in for downgrades in their roles, even though like they did the opposite of, of everything that would like get you a downgrade. Like they played better than their potential. So yeah, like like you said, the minute thing is going to be a very big uh, question to go in Boston. I'm glad you brought up the contract role because it's also easy for players to, you know, be happy taking less minutes and understanding the role. It's another thing when that's involved with their money they're making, and especially in a contract year for a player, Terry Rozier, who's never received a large contract, and Marcus Morris, who's received a decent contract, but nothing crazy or anything like that. I think those two are going to be the two that you're going to have to watch the most, as well as kind of the two that are most likely to be kicked out of the rotation. Yeah, for sure. So um, <clears throat> one thing that has been floated out there that I, um, our own reporter, Keith Smith, reported at Celtics blog, is that there's talks that the Celtics might actually rest guys throughout the year. So maybe because Kyrie is just coming off injury, Harris coming off injury, Al Horford's older, there's going to be nights where I think the team is going to want to sit them throughout the year. And I, and I think the hope of that, along with their age and injury, is that it could help with, with, this, with this lineup crunch. So you sit Kyrie down and let Rozier start for a game or two, like a week or something like that. Or maybe he gets to start like three games or four games a month. And you're hoping that, in, com- in combination with winning throughout the regular season, is going to, um, to kind of like ease those concerns or like keep, or like keep the locker room like at bed because 
as much as people don't want to talk about it, it is going to be an issue. Like they, they're, they're very competitive guys. These are all guys who know next year is going to be a lot of money on the table, and they're going to want to show their worth. So, yeah, like the Celtics are going to have to try to figure out whatever they can to get them um, roles that they're happy with. Right, and I something similar exists on the back end of Toronto's rotation with the amount of wing depth they've recently acquired with both Kawhi and Danny Green. The difference is that the two people likely to be kind of pushed out of the rotation are C.J. Miles, who's, I mean, he's not too concerned with his next contract at this point. I think he kind of knows that it's a downhill slope from here, as well as Norman Powell, who just got paid. So I think that while you might have similar wing concerns for them, the chances of them kind of being malcontent or being less happy isn't quite as high. Yeah, and I think, also I think for those two teams, what they do have um, in Toronto, you guys had a really good formula during the regular season of balancing like your two, your first unit and your second unit, and it's a lot of times it looked, it appeared from the outside, like the second unit got to carry, like carry a lot of the load throughout like the regular season, and I think that helped, like, like that helped the reserves all kind of bring themselves out, they got more minutes, they had roles that they're happy with, and, they're, and you're all winning at the same time. And I think Boston, their best uh, hope might be to have something like very similar to that, where they put together like a second unit team that kind of like extends leads or blows teams out so that they're not in a position where it's like they're always in crunch time, which is something very, very common for them last year. They're always being crunch time where like the starting, like the closing five is such a serious thing. If they're like, like the Raptors who are blowing teams out, maybe it's not, maybe it's not as big as a deal. Like who's playing? like, late in the fourth, or, like, who's getting, like, X amount of minutes because they'd be blowing people out. There's not a lot of, like, big minutes that are going to go around. Yeah, I saw something. Someone talked about this being the toughest coaching job Brad Stevens has to do. Well, I disagree with that. I think probably having to coach Abdul Nader is more difficult than trying to find time for Terry Rozier. Oh, my God. (laughs) It is going to be an interesting (laughs) challenge for him. Yeah, because, I mean... A different challenge. Yeah, for sure. I would say I would say it different. I think a harder challenge is trying to um, scheme for LeBron James and Kyrie Irving <laughs> when you have a Jared Sullinger and Kelly Olynyk front court. <laughs> I would think that's a little bit harder than what's going on right now. I think for now it's just about balancing personalities and hoping players are professionals about it. Because I mean, the Celtics have their starting five, and they have their two to three rotation guys that they want to play. So it's just a matter of getting them to all play cohesively together, and then having I think being honest. I think a lot of things that you hear, like when players and ownership don't um, agree with each other, and then like the relationship kind of goes downhill. A common theme you hear with players is that I wish the team was just like open with me. I wish they were real with me. I wish they just told me what it was like. So I feel like if the Celtics, and I guess for the Raptors with their things, if they're open with their players and just saying, hey, look, you might not have X amount of role this time. Like, we're going to see how it plays out. You're not going to have X role. We're going to see how this plays out. It's possible. I mean, like, these players are professionals. So maybe, like, you're hoping that they're okay with it and that because they're winning, that even though they're they're not playing as big as a role they want to, like, they see the bigger picture and they're okay playing with something above themselves. Yeah, that's a good point. Both teams are going to be successful. So, as you know, players are obviously more happy when they're on a successful team. As Toronto fans look at it, perhaps not watching Boston and kind of with the roster change, 
who do you think is going to be kind of the main, I don't know if it's a nine-man or ten-man rotation for the Celtics throughout the year? Do you think Ojale plays, or who's who's the nine guys, I guess, or however many okay. that they put in the rotation? Okay, so um, I think their starting five is going to be Kyrie, Jalen Brown, um, Jason Tatum, Gordon Hayward, and Al Horford. You talk about um, a modern starting five. That's yeah, that, pretty much as yeah. modern as you get. Yeah, and I think coming off their bench, um, I would say that throughout the year, you could see them go to 10 to 11, but I'll answer this as if it's a, it's like a playoff series. So if it's a playoff series, I think the, the guys that are going to come off the bench are Smart, Rozier, Tice, Baines, and... Mook. It's gonna be a it's gonna be difficult between Ooh. Mook and Mook and Ojale because here's the thing, um, Mook is obviously a better creator. He's a more confident player, and he is a good one-on-one defender. I think Ojale is a better team defender, and he does a better and I think he plays a more into the team construct offensively. Like he could just sit there and he knows how to sit in the corner and take his shots or move the ball smartly. Um, It'll be very difficult, I think, for Stevens to pick between those two, and it could just be like a play-by-ear situation where it's like, okay, we need someone to create something right now. Let's get Mook in this to add another dimension. Or it's like, hey, we need Oge- we need like Ojale's just like steady presence right now. We're good. And then he might get the nod. And then I don't think it's also between just Mook and Ojale. Also a guy like Daniel Tice is going to be, like, somewhere who's going to be, like, in that mix of guys who, like, might be in and out of the rotation. So, you could be looking at, like, I think a lot of it just is going to come to situation. Like, Brad is going to read the situation. He's going to see, like, okay, we need, like, maybe, like, scoring right now. We need a guy who can create. Mook. Okay, we need a guy who can play in the team concept. Ojale. Okay, we need some energy right now. Uh, Tice. And I think that's how it's going to be played throughout the, throughout the entire year, even into playoffs. It's going to be like, a, what, do, what, what do we need right now? And from that standpoint, that's why I don't think Steven's job is as hard as it is more kind of like better because he's always going to have options to go either way. So it's just going to be a matter of getting the guys to buy in because once they buy in, like, it makes that part much easier. I think it's funny, one, that Semi Ojale as a second-year player is the consistent force rather than Mook, who's the obviously kind of six-, seven-year veteran, but I totally agree with you. I think as an outsider, it would surprise many people that Daniel Tice is ahead of both those guys, kind of in your opinion right now. Yeah, I mean, I think what, like, if Daniel Tice is someone that literally you have to have been watching the games to understand, like, his value. And and I hate being one of those guys, like, watch the games, but, like, really, because, like, his value is not what he can score. It's not how many rebounds he's pulling down or how many blocks. It's that he's one of our smartest players. Like he always is in the right defensive rotation. He can he can play on the perimeter. He can defend the post in certain situations. And he's he was developing an outside three. And he's one of our most intelligent passers. Maybe not like in terms of like getting the assist, but he's a good ball mover. Like he reads the floor very well. And players like smart players like that, even though they're not going to necessarily show show it with the numbers, they're very good to have like in your second unit because you just want someone that's going to be consistent, someone that's going to be able to, like, 
continue like the good player build off what the first unit did and because of that like i think he might end up being ahead of both of them because just just because of that just because i think out of those three he's he's the smartest um and most complete basketball player on both ends right i think he's someone that kind of thrives off playing around other good basketball players similar to al horford in a way where they just make the right basketball play consistently and do everything well enough that you don't have to worry about them yeah and i would even add on um if the, if, in a situation where there's a playoff scenario you're probably not going to see straight up second units and something that the celtics did was they played gordon hayward as actually the lead guard in some of their second unit uh, matchups like from the preseason in charlotte i think it's a role that they like him in so if you have a guy like that you have like a guy who's who's scoring like 20 plus points per game in your second unit like how much do you really need like a scorer or how much you need like another guy who wants to play iso so and that's kind of where marcus morris could get this advantage in a playoff situation when you look at kind of the back end of the rotation what to expect do you think this team's i think three million over the tax right now do you yeah. think that one of those guys is kind of going to get dealt not as much for the tax concerns but to not start the clock on the repeater tax yeah, so this is something that like we talk a lot about on our site, and there's a lot of disagreement. Um, some people don't think it's that big of a deal, because some people say, oh, it's so far down the road, and so much can happen. For example, Kyrie leaving, for example. Like, that, that completely changes the dynamic, and you're not even worried about the tax anymore. But then also, if he stays, and then you already didn't care about it this year, now you're already going to start the clock, um, no matter what. So the Celtics front office has said that they're okay paying it. I mean, everyone says that until they get the bill three, <laughs> four years down the road, and then you're getting the luxury taxes. Everyone says that. So they they say they claim they're okay paying it, but they did trade Nader um, instead of waiving him to cut to cut costs. They're very close where they can move like a Yabusele into space and be under. And, but right now, I think the only team that could do that is Sacramento, and I don't think there's any advantage for them doing that, unless they, the Celtics throw a sweetener, which I don't think they want to already be parting ways with a first-round pick and throwing a sweetener on top of it just to get on the luxury tax. So right now, I would say it's possible because they're already so deep and because maybe they want to open a roster spot later down the road that like near the deadline, you could see a move to kind of like get them under but I don't know. I think they're gonna. I think they'd be okay just being over if it meant like they felt like this is a good group of guys. This is a good fifteen. We could win a championship with this. Like I think they might just be okay being there and just staying in the tax. It's kind of it's an interesting scenario. I think it's probably one of the most interesting tax situations we have because one, like you said, it is so easy to trade a player just on the back end of the rotation and you start the clock one year later. But at the other end, you might be the second best team in the NBA and are you really going to lower your chances to win based on the luxury tech? It's just an interesting situation for kind of the Boston Celtics, perhaps the most interesting cap situation we have. Yeah, for sure. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, just, it's just, I think what you'll see also is like, just, I don't think that from, like, I'm not sure they're scared of it as kind of like us bloggers are when we talk about it because we kind of have seen the luxury tax, what it does to teams, like, in the past. Because, like, they have so long to get 
under it, mm-hmm. like, they might just be okay, like, going through, like, the whole year than, than, like, maybe before the draft or something. From what I understand, you could do that, like, before the draft next year, just trading something and being okay. So I think, like, I don't know, I think they'll, I think they'll play it by ear, and they'll just see, like, what it is. Because even though, like, a guy like Yabusele is not a guy who's predicted to play a lot, um, he started a couple games last year. And they love him just as, like, his energy and stuff like that. And we saw with a team like the Warriors, even guys like Nick Young, JaVale McGee, even if they weren't, like, core, core pieces, like, we've heard how just their spirits and stuff like that help lift them up and help get them to grind in the regular season. So maybe even if it's not in the basketball sense they're helping you, the fact that they're good kind of, like, locker room guys could just have, just could just give them enough value where it's like you might just not want to just dump them just to dump them. Right, that's a good point. When you look at the Boston Celtics, one interesting question I think that I'm not sure the answer of is who do you think is the best player on the Celtics? Uh, or who do you think ends the season as the best player? I think that's more interesting. Uh, man, okay, yeah. So this one, this is a tough one for me. Um, I guess I guess it speaks to to the Celtics team building that they were able to build around three stars who are the best at something in their own individual way and they all kind of build off each other but I'm not going to do that I'm not going to politic my way around this question I'm just going to answer it straight up um I want to say Gordon Hayward I really do but I'm going to go with Kyrie Irving and the reason I say that is because I think out of all the elite skills that, that these players possess, um, Kyrie Irving is the one guy I know that if it gets to a series in the Warriors in June, he could absolutely torch that team. Straight up. I know he's, his skill is so elite that against maybe the best team ever assembled, he could drop 40 if needed in the NBA Finals. And yes, his defense is... A coming and going experiment. Um, his he's still he's still getting better as a guy who creates for others, and you can make a very strong argument that because Gordon Hayward is a solid defender who can defend in the in the post and in space, that he can shoot the three, he can shoot mid range, he can score in the lane, um, he can even create for himself ability at six eight. You can make a very compelling case that he's the best player, and I wouldn't disagree with you. I would just say that. Kyrie Irving is a ceiling raiser. He's the guy that maybe you don't need him to win 50 games in regular season, but you might need him in, Eastern, in the Eastern Conference Finals in Game 3 when you have a chance to go up 3-0. Or in Game 7 when you have a chance to put away a team and you need a guy who would just step up and make it. So I think what the South is, it, come down, it comes down to what particular thing you, you, you personally value the most and whatever, whatever you actually value the most is probably what's going to lend your decision to, like, who's the best player. So for me, I would say, like, that elite creation, to me, is, by, is the skill I value the most. And because of that, I would say Kyrie Irving. Right. He's not as well-rounded as Horford or Hayward. But he definitely, his one skill set is far greater than anyone else's on the team. And that he can score the ball in isolation better than any player on the Celtics and when it comes down to it, is one of the best guards in the league up there with maybe Harden and Curry. But 
the way he scores, I think, is particularly valuable in the postseason compared to the regular season because as the game slows down and as the game kind of gets in the mud, he's able to get his bucket pretty much whenever he wants. Yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, everyone during the regular season, they all want to pass a lot, get high assists, and they all want to shoot threes. And all the good, smart teams in the playoffs, they switch a lot to cut off passing to, like, at least, like, limit the advantages of passing the ball, and they guard the three-point line like hell. And what that does is that it puts a premium on guys who can create outside of um, the catch-and-shoot three-pointers. And that's why you see, like, a lot, like, during the playoffs, and those, like, especially those later rounds, like, even the Warriors got pushed to being an isolation team because that's what kind of, like, the skill that you need to, like, kind of, like, get by during, the, like, those later stages in late May. So for me, like, that's why that skill to me is just, like, I put such a premium on it, and I think that's why he's the best player. Yeah, totally makes sense. I think when you're talking about the Celtics, there's realistically, I think, four players that you could consider their best player by the end of next season. If Jason Tatum makes a crazy leap, I think it's probably a bit of a stretch to say Tatum at this time, but, I mean, who knows? He went, he was their best player at the end of the series versus Cleveland, so it's very possible that he could be, but... It's crazy that they have four players who you might consider their best player and, and their contenders. I don't think we've seen a team like that since maybe the Pistons back in, uh, was it 02? No, that's too far back, but back then. Yeah, for sure. or six. Yeah. I and I think that's also just a testament to, like, us as a basketball community, like, how we value players. And for us, it's not just a matter of, like, points per game and, like, who's the guy who's going to, like, take the most shots and drop, like, 28-plus or whatever. Like, we look at players kind of, like, for all their skills and for all their values. Even now, like, I don't think, like, in 20, in 2003, 2005, like, we would look at Al Horford and even put him in that conversation just based on his counting stats. Yeah, oh, we've definitely become smarter as a basketball community. And I always joke around, I always think of Al Horford as kind of my litmus test for how much... I trust your basketball opinion. If you're one of the people who kind of throws Al Horford to the side and says he's overrated, I always kind of take your opinion with a grain of salt. He was always kind of one of the guys that I can really judge your basketball intelligence on what you think of him as a player. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, as we talk about both the Celtics and Toronto, I think it's probably pretty obvious, at least to most people, that those two are the biggest front runners. And then, would you say Philadelphia is kind of clearly the third team, or do you disagree with that? No, I actually don't. I actually think Philadelphia is maybe one of the most overrated teams in the NBA. Um, I, if I have Phil, so for first, I think the third best team is going to be the Milwaukee Bucks. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I'm one of those people who think that a big part of like what's going to make them better is just like having a better system. And I think Coach Bud is going to utilize Giannis a lot better than either Kidd or Prunty did. He's going to he's going to give him a lot of space. They have guys who are capable of shooting. And between him and Middleton, I think we're going to see like a much better Milwaukee team, especially during the regular season and into the playoffs, where they have you know maybe one of those unstoppable forces in the NBA. And the reason I think that the Sixers are um, overrated is because like. Like, they got to 50 wins based off a 16-game winning streak against maybe the softest schedule in the league in the second half. And it was them trying very hard against other teams that are ready to pack it in for the summer. 
And in reality, I really do think they're maybe like closer to like the 45, 47 win team than they are that 50 win team. And that, don't get me wrong, I still think they're a good team. I still think they're going to be like in the conversation like in mid May and stuff like that. Like, I, I think they'll still be around. And I think they're only going to get better. I'm not trying to put like a ceiling on them. I just think like right now, um, a big part of like how we view them comes from like their set their big second half run. And if we learn anything throughout history, like we shouldn't put such a premium on how teams perform in like second half of the year. We saw that with Miami, who went like 31 and 10 during the regular season, not not uh, this season, but last season. Everyone came into that year thinking like, hey man, I think they're a lot. They're really good. They were 31 10 to end the season. They have a deep team. Like they could do it, and they went just about 500 again. So. I would say the Sixers are definitely, like, in the top, like, four, but I think that Milwaukee's better than them. Well, yeah, I think t- people always do this. They ended the season hot, and it's been statistically shown that you're not looking at the back half of the season is no more productive than looking at the season as a whole. And as a whole, point differential is better than both of those. So it cracks me up when people say, well, they won X amount of games over the last after the All-Star break, well, it's been shown that that doesn't really have an impact rather than their overall record. As you talk about Milwaukee, I think that's a good team to bring up based on the fact that I don't think Jason Kidd was a very good coach. And I think it was shown in the seven-game series with Boston last year, and yes, Boston was dealing with injuries, but it shows you in the playoffs, I think one singular player can lift a team more than they can in the regular season. Oh, yeah, for sure. And the funny thing is that <laughs> if you ask Boston fans what singular player that was, you would be surprised how many people said Chris Middleton. Because I think he shot, like, without, I'm not even playing, I think he shot, like, 63% that series. It's shooting all fadeaway, 19, 20-footers with a couple threes sprinkled in. I don't, I think he missed maybe, like, a handful of times for the seven series. But that also kind of goes to your point, like, they do kind of have, like, the guys where in a playoff series like, they can step up in the biggest moment. Like, Giannis, no matter what you do, he's going to find a way to get 25, 10, and whatever. No matter what defense you play, no matter how much you pack the paint, that's going to happen. Now, if you throw in a guy like Chris Middleton, who's also going to get get buckets, and then now you have spacers and shooters around, and they're all long, they're all switchy, and now they have a super good coach, like, the recipe to be, like, a dark horse is definitely there for Milwaukee. Yeah, good point. I... I totally agree with you there. I think Philadelphia is still, in my mind, the third best team, but it wouldn't shock me if they were kind of fourth place or if they took a step back. And that's also kind of taking into account Joel Embiid's health. I, I understand he was healthy pretty much all last season, but you know we are just one year removed from him missing so much time, and I think that it's weird. Everybody wants to talk about Hayward and Leonard's health, but we just assume Joel Embiid will be healthy all year. Yeah, I mean, it's that's actually a very good point. Like, we still, like, no one can really with certainty say that Joel Embiid is going to be, like, 100%, like, on a year-to-year basis, and that's a big part of their team. He's may, maybe, depending on, who, depending on who you think, he to me, I think he's the best player on their team. Yeah, but I, I think just, like, what he brings them in terms of, like, just a consistent threat in the post, um, he's a guy who who can, but isn't always, like, efficient at stretching the floor. And then defensively, he's just, like, amazing to be able to move at that size. So I think, like, if you can't 
always know whether he's going to be on the floor or not. Like, it's it's hard. It's very hard to predict, like, just their ceiling all the time. Yeah, that's a good point. Kind of talking about Gordon Hayward's injury and Kawhi's, um, Gordon Hayward, what are the chances he plays almost all season? Do you think that he's fully recovered from this injury and kind of, I guess, Kyrie Irving's too? Okay, I'll start with um, Hayward. So Hayward, his was just kind of like a straight-up, like, dislocation. So they put the um, ankle back in place. He's basically now it's structurally sound is the last thing we were told publicly. Um, he just, he recently had, like, the plates removed, so now he doesn't even have to worry about that later. Like, if the plates are out, it's structurally sound. And it was just a matter of, like, it was just a bone like, kind of, like, dislocating, and now it's back, he should be completely, like, 100%. So, that's, the, so based off what they've told us, that's kind of, like, what we're going with. So, I would say he's 100%. Kyrie is a little, is, it's, it's a little different, because from what I understand of it, it's, he had the place in his knee from the 2015 finals when he, like, fractured his kneecap, so they obviously, to put it together, they put metal in the knee, when the metal um, needs to come out eventually, he tried to fight through it, like, not take it out. And that was supposedly the injury, like, he was telling the Cavaliers, if you don't trade me, I'll just take it out right now, yeah. and, I won't, and I won't play for you guys. So, basically, it got to a point where he had to take it out because, like, the wires were irritating him. So, he went in the first time. He got the kind of, like, wires um, cut out, and he thought he was okay. And then the doctor said that there's an infection in his knee. And it was the metal part. And apparently, like, the metal was putting some type of, like, it, it was, like, infected. So they had to take it out. And then he also had to get antibiotics all the time. And it was, like, a very serious injury. Um, we all, we, none of us really know the full details. Because that would be a HIPAA violation if we found out everything. So we don't know all the details. But from everything now, it's that his knee is still progressing. It's fine. He won't say he's 100% or not. He just said that, like, he's getting ready to start his 5-on-5 drills and stuff like that. And he claimed it's structurally sound, and it's all said publicly said his knee is structurally sound now. So it's just, like, a matter of him, like, like, we'll, it's kind of like, we'll see, because Kyrie has kind of been a little injury prone throughout his career. Though, if you look at it, that's maybe, like, his first, like, major, major injury. Everything else has kind of been, like, nicks and bruises. Like, maybe, like, he fractured, like, his nose, which he's done a couple of times. Um, he's sprained his arm. I Like, little stuff like that. But this this like, his first major one. They're saying it's 100% to go. And if it's 100%, then he should be okay. I think something that he did that I don't think a lot of people realize and went on the radar is he got a surgery on his deviated septum um, to fix, like, a nose fracture that he said he got back when he's on the Cavaliers. And the last player to do that was Andre Drummond. And if you read kind of, like, the stuff he says about it, it's like, oh, I can breathe now. Like, I can move around more than, like, I ever could ever move around. Like, he claims to have, like, lost a bunch of weight from that. And he had one of his best years last year. So I'm interested to see, like, and maybe, like, that deviated something that Kyrie says he's been playing with for a couple of seasons, like, makes him kind of more, um, more explosive and, like, more, have, like, better conditioning and stuff like that as well. But just off those injuries, the word is that they should both be okay, but I'm more, I'm a lot more confident saying Hayward's going to be 100% than I am with Kyrie, until I see it at least. 
Right. I think people saw how gross Hayward's injury was and how gruesome it was, and they think that's the more serious injuries. But a lot of times it's the other way, that anything with a knee or anything like that is more serious than kind of those clean breaks. Yes, yep, that's true. Um, lastly, I just kind of want to break down a potential seven-game series between the Celtics and the Raptors. I think that's kind of the most likely scenario in the Eastern Conference Finals, or at least I think what most people are expecting. What do you think the Celtics' biggest advantage is over the Raptors, and what do you think their biggest weakness is? Um, okay, so I'll start with strengths and, and, and weaknesses. So I think strength is something we talked about a little bit earlier, having um, a little bit of offensive, having the offensive versatility edge. Um, they have guys maybe like across the board at all positions that are able to create for themselves if need be. Um, that'd be a big advantage. And I think they're one of the teams that's kind of like, like kind of they're built um, kind of to defend the Raptors, as in they have a lot of wing depth to direct Kawhi. They have a lot of guys like Rozier uh, and Smart to throw at to throw at Lowry, and e- even even Jalen Brown. I mean, they, 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 so they have the versatility to kind of like that fits how to defend the Raptors. So those would be their strengths, and their weaknesses are they might not have home field advantage, home court advantage. And I want to see if they could actually beat the Raptors in Toronto, which I, I'm skeptical of. Um, they're going to have to rely on more than their starting five, and I'm not sure that they have a better second unit than the Raptors. I'm not 100% on that. And I think that the Raptors starting five can at least like play to the Celtics' level. And if they do that, and it comes down to like who are your, who are your like, plus three coming off the bench, who's going to be able to, like, win it from on a night-to-night basis, I'm not sure. And, um, I think, obviously, just trying to, even though they even though they have, like, guys to defend Kawhi, I would still say a big weakness to them is having to play against Kawhi, because Kawhi can at least, like, lock down whoever they want to put on him. Like, maybe not Al Horford, because obviously, like, it's a different position, but, like, if Hayward... It's having a good night. You can put Kawhi on him. If Kyrie is having a good night, you can put, you can just throw Kawhi on him. Um, if Jalen, same thing. So they kind of had those kind of lockdown guys, and I'm and I didn't even bring up like OG and Pascal. So like that that could be another potential danger for them is that the the Raptors do kind of have the guys that even though you have offensive versatility, they also have kind of like the guys that are able to defend them like one on one if need be. Right, I think. I think Toronto has the best player in the series. Obviously, if Kawhi Leonard is healthy and right, and I think that they have more depth than Boston at the back end of the bench, I think Boston's advantage is kind of in that players two through five zone. When you're talking Tatum, Brown, Hayward, if Kyrie's best, or whoever's number two, I think that's kind of where their advantage is over Toronto, and it will be an interesting matchup to see if, Toronto's depth plus Kawhi is able to overcome the difference in those kind of two through five players. Yeah, for sure. And I oh, so quick thing about the Raptors. I've heard a lot about um, Pascal Siakam playing the five. Is that something that like they're looking to do this year? Do you think, or is that like kind of like maybe like in the works for down the road? I think 
from everything that Nurse has kind of talked about during his press conference, I think he's going to try to just throw a lot of stuff on the wall this year and see what sticks. I I don't think he'll play major minutes there, but it wouldn't shock me to see kind of a Pascal, OG, Kawhi, Danny Green, DeLon Wright lineup where they just switch everything across the board, similar to kind of what the Rockets did with P.J. Tucker at center and something like that where you're not playing it against, I guess, all teams, but I think you could play it against, for example, I think you could play it against the Celtics starting five with Horford. I think Pascal's at least big enough to handle the mobile centers when other teams go small, and I think you're fast enough to switch things that they'll try it, although I'm not sure how often they'll play it. That's scary because I think OG can play the five too, and I think Serge can play the five. Like I think Serge is going to play as much minutes at five this season as he does at power forward. Because if you look at it, there's I mean, there talks about adding Greg Monroe or you know um, Thomas Robinson, but those guys aren't consistent rotation players. And JV only played 23 minutes a game last year, so I think Serge will play as much at center as he does power forward. Yeah. Oh, and that's probably another advantage that the Raptors have is that big position because Jonas Valanciunas is someone who can actually kind of create for himself. Like, he could spread the floor a little bit. I think I saw last year. He can score in the post, and he's someone that just... He's another guy that could maybe, like, you could use him to force Boston's hand to play Aaron Baines more than they would probably want to. That's just a that's just a really good team, man. It's that a very would, deep team. It will be a kind of big point, I think, if... Jonas is able to play Al Horford off the center position and make them play Aaron Baines, or if Al Horford is able to play Jonas Valanciunas off the court with his pick-and-pop game. I think that will also be something to kind of watch as the series goes on. I think that could have a big impact. Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't, I'm not even sure if Al Horford could do that, because I don't think that's, that's how they play. Like, against the Clavaliers, the they just used Kevin Love like he was a wing, and they had him out of the perimeter, getting back screens from Kyle Korver, like, running off, and, like, they really featured him. And I don't know if the Celtics would do it in that type of way. Like, it would have to be uh, pick and pop and stuff like that, like, the way they kind of did to Embiid and make him, like, right. have to make decision all the time. And, and I mean, it's possible, but... Right, it, they were playing Embiid at times, you know, over on... Morris, I don't think that next year you'll be able to do that to Boston as they get Gordon Hayward and another guy. You know, you can hide him on Morris, which is fine. I think he's good enough to do that. But putting him on Hayward and obviously Jonas, that's another factor that will be difficult to do. Yeah. Well, Alex, I think that pretty much wraps everything up. I guess before you go, what do you think the chances are? Give me a percent chance that Boston wins, percent chance Toronto wins. Um, right now, I would go 52% Boston wins, 48% <laughs> Toronto wins, and, 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 like, obviously, like, the swing stats there, like we talked about, is, like, what type of Kawhi you guys are going to get. Awesome. That sounds good. Hey, thanks for talking to me. Uh, look forward to maybe talking to you later in the season as these two teams are kind of the top of the East. Hey, anytime, man. Thanks for having me on. Cool. All right. Um, I thought that went really well. I'll edit it up here and i'll probably post it we usually have one that records sunday that's me and the guy in our site and i'll probably post this one thursday all right no problem man thanks for having me again yo thanks for coming on i thought it went well no problem see ya
thought it went well.